0: Namo itasa bhagavatu arhatu sammasambhutasa Namo itasa bhagavatu arhatu sammasambhutasa Namo itasa bhagavatu arhatu it's very lovely to be here. It's a very sweet, sweet town. It has a nice feeling to it. This place is lovely. It's nice to see uh, see some people that I were, were with a day long yesterday, and also to have some new faces. And it's lovely to have people who are new to the practice as well as people who are a little bit younger. It's lovely. <laughs> <laughs> um the The theme of the talk this evening is uh, managing the gap, um, working the edges where meditation doesn 't reach and i want to I want to just share a little bit from my own personal experience. You know I started meditating when I was seventeen, and when I was seventeen, I just had this absolute faith that the buddha's teaching was 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 right and that that it really was possible to to practice and to understand suffering and come to an end of suffering so it was almost as if i never had any doubt you know but there was also this kind of like sense that you know if i was 17 you know there was a long list of stuff that i was navigating which probably is pretty common for 17 year old people you know there's all sorts of things that just are I haven't settled yet confusions and issues and all kinds of things And so, you know, underneath my faith was also a conviction that if I meditated, I would get enlightened, and everyone would love me, and I wouldn't suffer. (laughs) Pretty straightforward, don't you think? And it took a long, long, long time to realize, first of all, that that actually was my assumption, and that it, 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 it had areas in it that weren't accurate. Because, you know, the the teaching is, is that the Buddha is the greatest physician and here's a you know a tonka of the medicine Buddha, you know, that the Buddha actually brings the medicine that is able to cure all the ills of the suffering in the world and and so the, the feeling is is that if one brings oneself completely to the practice and applies oneself wholeheartedly and dedicated, then that um, medicine is going to be something that is gonna move through every aspect of one's life. That's the kind of hope. And the reality is is that, you know, when I look at my own practice and when I see the way I have um, unfolded, that there were elements that the meditation practice didn't open up. I needed other things to help get leverage or insider perspective. So meditation works with attitudes and values and beliefs that we are aware of. It doesn't work with stuff that we're not aware of. So stuff that is, is, sometimes when we meditate what happens is, is that the um, there's a a, an, a release of memories or a release of sensations or a release of things that happen that we weren't aware of. And so that certainly is something that can happen in meditation. And, and some people get a little bit um, overwhelmed because all of a sudden they're flooded with memories of things that they had no idea occurred and it takes a little bit of digesting to wrap one's um, mind around the the intensity of what that means. So it certainly is possible, and it does happen as a regular thing, that within meditation, stuff that we don't know about surfaces into awareness, and then that becomes the material that we work with in our practice. You know, that's kind of regular. But there's also times or ways in which... I- I- the stuff that's buried doesn't arise into awareness and yet the stuff that's buried is informing us in terms of the views that we have the values that we have the way we make our decisions the the things that drive us or this kind of baseline wallpaper of anxiety or wallpaper of self-doubt that's just sort of like so normal it's just not even noticed because it just seems like it's just white noise it's just everywhere and There are times when it is difficult to work with stuff like that because the way the mind operates is that ignorance doesn't see itself. It doesn't see itself. And so the stuff that actually is not coming from right understanding is sometimes the stuff that is the most difficult to illuminate. The other way in which this can operate is, um, you know, it's. I think that culture is now a little bit more experienced in working with trauma, and you know, trauma has a way of 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 being uh, imprinted into the physical body, into the psyche, and it will continue to repeat itself until the trauma is actually understood and resolved, and. The tools that are needed for looking at trauma are specific tools that combine mindfulness as well as the understanding the territory of what happens when a system is shocked and 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 freezes or somehow uh, gets traumatized. These tools are not a, an automatic thing that arises after years of meditation experience. So what can happen is is that we can be living with traumas that are impacting our life without actually having the skill or the resources to touch them, know them, and dismantle them. And they are continuing to repeat themselves in our lives and our relationships. So one of the things that was really fascinating in, in living in the community with the sisters this is the kind of ways in which the sisters have learned to work with all of this. So... Um You know, one would think, or one would might imagine that a monastery is a really wonderful place to live, and it certainly has that potential, okay, but the reality is is, is that the monastery is made up of a whole group of people, and cr- people come with all the stuff that they come with, and until they have a kind of handle on how to deal with that stuff, that stuff is being acted out in relationships that they are living with, and when you're in a monastery, that means the people that are around you. So my own personal experience in living in the monastery was is that it took quite a long time, like 20 years of the community being together until there was sufficient um, skill to be able to navigate some of this territory in a way that we actually were responding appropriately to what was arising rather than superimposing the, the ideals of community life on top of things in a way that wasn't helpful. And so, you know, if people come from backgrounds where there's alcohol or there's, you know, disrespect or abuse, then those things are imprinted in our psyche. And unless there's the willingness and the ability to enter into that territory, they continue to perpetuate. And just sitting quietly on the cushion oftentimes is not enough to allow this stuff to be entering into awareness and to find the skill to touch it in a way where it starts to resolve and dismantle and so for me it was a kind of what sobering i don't know what sobering wake up to realize that after you know a couple of decades of meditation there were large aspects of my own psyche that i that i didn't have access to that I didn't know, I didn't understand, and I didn't understand how they were driving me. And so it then required for me to find other skillful means to be able to develop the tools to bring attention into the areas that, where attention had been constantly been deflected. As I was able to do that, then my own experience of self-inquiry also increased and it also supported a, a deeper ability to allow insight to, uh, to unfold in its own natural way because this, the energy that was involved with holding these things together was not obscuring or obstructing the mind and the heart opening in the way it naturally can do when the energy is freed up. The other thing which is interesting to watch is, is, is that we can see that um, enlightenment does not necessarily mean that a person is able to examine cultural biases. And so you can have enlightened masters who are genuinely, authentically enlightened, but they have no capacity to look at the cultural biases that are embedded in their society because that is considered just normal, and those normal things are just passed down without necessarily inquiry or investigation as to what they're made out of and the kind of harmful roots that they can perpetuate. So without any intention to harm, cultural biases which are not supportive can be passed on from generation to generation. Without the meditation by itself revealing... What they are, and how harmful their effects of believing them are. So one of the things that uh, you know I have dealt with, and the sisters have dealt with, is, is that we're living in a in a monastery where it's very clearly established that the monks are senior, and they are the ones who have authority. And this is sort of the way the tradition has been defined. And so we have the enormous blessing of living with the privilege of living on alms and in a situation that is supporting waking up and interested in our whole life being a part of waking up. But after many years when the sisters were trying to articulate the dilemma of what we were in the middle of, both the enormous blessings of our experience as well as the challenges of of trying to negotiate uh, cultural biases that come from another era and another culture than the one that we were born into, we were met with a resistance, that this actually is not Dhamma. This is not, if you were meditating properly, these questions would not arise. If you were meditating properly, you would be able to transcend this stuff and practice in a way where the blessings and the benefit are so overwhelmingly powerful that these things are not even questions that you are interested in asking. And so my own... Recognition of this process was to lead me to a different conclusion. <laughs> 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 and then, after 20 years of practicing in this way, I began to stop doubting my own ability to practice correctly and start asking different questions, which had an interesting effect <laughs> So my initial assumption, my initial kind of faith was is that meditation would do everything. It would be the only thing that you needed. And when I first came to the monastery there was a sense that actually that's what everybody believed. so that was kind of like the culture of the community. And so, you know, we used to joke, but in fact it really wasn't a joke. This is that whenever there was any kind of difficulty that would arise, particularly around power structures or issues with juniors and seniors, the kind of bottom line was just shut up and watch your mind. <laughs> As if that was going to sort everything out. Yeah. And then after many years we realized, well, actually there's more, more to it than that. And what we needed to develop was skills in communication skills and communication and being able to unpack some of the complexity of what was actually arising in our community dynamic itself. And that was both very challenging as well as enormously enriching. And so I really have to say hats off to the sisters, because the sisters, I mean, we were a little bit cornered because it was so, um, we didn't have a whole lot of choice. It was like the the situation in the community was sufficiently unpleasant that we we were forced to do this because not doing this was really not an option you know so we took this up because we recognized that you know what was happening in our own community dynamic was sufficiently conflicted that we needed to understand what was actually going on and how a lot of what was going on was our own internal processes and these massive projections that were going back and forth without any capacity to see them clearly for what they were and untangle them and come back into a proper relationship with our own hearts, bodies, and minds, and feelings. And so... There was all kinds of stuff that was going on that was not being attended to in a skillful way with the assumption that because we were diligent and sincere in keeping precepts and practicing regularly, Uh that that would be the thing that would do it. And after 20 years, we realized it ain't doing it. We need to do something different. And so, you know, my sense of the, of, the, of the confidence in the sisters comes from a wholehearted willingness to embrace the interpersonal relationship as a realm of practice that needs to be included alongside the solitary practice of being able to reflect and just see things in one's own experience as to how they are. Now, one of the things that's a real blessing and a benefit, and I'll talk more about it tomorrow when I talk about the community as spiritual path, is, is that one of the things that can happen in a healthy community is the ability to hold a safe container where people's goodness is mirrored to such an extent that it supports the interest and the willingness to do this very challenging work of looking at this mucky stuff that nobody wants to know about, you know? It's like, you don't go there until you're cornered. I mean, I tend to be a drama queen, you know? I really do. That's been like my flavor of my life. And there have been times that have been really hard. And, you know, with true drama queen style, I would say, you know, I I remember there was one situation where I was desperate absolutely desperate. And so I was telling my friends, they shoot horses and put them out of their misery. You know, it's like, can't get worse than this, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so it was like with every ounce of fight and fur and fang that I could muster, it was total resistance to actually dealing with what was in front of me, which was an awful lot of pain and hurt and mixed up with all kinds of other things. But it's like there was no way I was going to go there willingly until I realized I had no choice. You know, I was cornered. And there was no way I could get out of it. So once I tried every strategy of resistance in all my drama queen whatevers, and couldn't get out of it, and I I thought, well, you know, if I disrobe, the only thing that that will do is I'll be a kind of gelatinous pulp without robes. It's like, that's not going to help. You know, that's not where the problem is. It was in situations like that where I was cornered, where then I was willing to look at some of this stuff, which was so painful, you know, and so hard to look at. But when I was able to do that work and touch that, then there was a whole new level of understanding presence and being and peace. That before I had touched that, you know, I could certainly speak about it, but it didn't actually come into my body in a way that it did after I had actually opened up that territory. So the gap is often visible in our relationships with people. We don't necessarily see it just in ourselves. And so one of the ways in which this stuff gets mirrored is in community. And what is happening in the way that we're relating with each other, and so it is my—it's my, um, it's my uh, vision, it's my kind of sense that you know my <coughs> aspiration to wake up out of suffering was not just limited to the transcendent kind of suffering that you can touch when you're dealing with the with the aspects of meditation that are classically dealt with. But all forms of suffering that arise, not just the one kind or the other kind, but all of it. And so, you know, this this stuff that this material requires a deep willingness to do profound inner work in order to touch where this stuff is actually residing and get underneath it in order for it to release. And what I have experienced is, is that it's actually rare. to have meditation teachers who understand this territory and who teach in a way that support both, you know, that actually support the profound inquiry that comes from meditation and understand its limitation and when some just very basic work is needed in order to build certain kinds of foundations in our sense of who we are and our sense of well being in order that our system is is cohesive and congruent and strong enough to then support this deep inquiry. They actually support each other. And it's not that you actually have to do one entirely first before you can do the other, but one of the things that happens in meditation practice, or at least it has been my experience, is the meditation practice illuminates the psychological work that needs to be done. And then we need to come up with the resources and the skills and the tools of how to attend to it. Recognizing that it is not going to sort out by itself, just sitting one's self on the cushion quietly or doing one's practices. At least that has been my experience. So, this is like both a kind of disappointment, you know, because what about the magnificence of the Buddha's teachings and the sense that he was the universal physician that would be able to deal with everything? But it's also a sense of liberation when one recognizes, well, there actually are ways and means to attend to this stuff. There are ways that community can support each other to do this kind of work. There is the ability to integrate these things, and it is possible to move through this territory. But not with the same kind of naive hope or sense that one started with, or at least my experience, you know. I needed to grow up. You know, I didn't like it, but I needed to, you know. So, um, one of the things that we can observe uh, in community and with teachers and in spiritual practices is that, you know, you can have the ability to articulate the Dhamma, and yet you can get off the Dhamma seat and, you know, everything you touch can be chaos, you know and i've lived with people in the monastery like that you know i know it actually does happen quite regularly and so there's there's some deep genuine insight which is absolutely authentic but there's all kinds of areas that it's not reaching and there isn't the ability to reflect on that as and bring that into practice and so it's like a person both needs to have the willingness as well as the capacity to do that. you know. And sometimes one or the other is missing. But that gap, that gap shows itself up in terms of the effects of what a person is doing or saying or how they're relating with other people. And so the relationship world, the world of relating then can be a way of mirroring when that gap is operating or when that gap is visible. But obviously it takes an enormous amount of skill. And the sisters found it very interesting because, you know, I don't know what it is about sisters, but sisters are phenomenally perceptive, like so incredibly perceptive. But it took us decades to learn how to articulate our perceptivity in ways that was useful, because just knowing something or seeing something is not the same as helping a person in a loving way and respectful way reflect on it in order that they can come to some kind of a useful way of relating to that. And these are skills. They don't, they don't just naturally come with, with meditation, And they don't even naturally come with community living. They come with an interest in understanding how to pick them up and develop them. But you see, that's my vision. You know, that's my sense of what a spiritual community is about. It's not about only keeping precepts and doing pujas and meditating and having time in solitude. But it's a willingness to take the principle of awakening out of suffering into every aspect of our life. And so, you know, that's what I, that's what my sense of the greatest potential that a spiritual community can support is really uh, about, or that would be the way of, of, of living it, embodying it. Now, obviously, it's easy to say that. Actually creating the conditions where that's happening is a different story, you know. Anyway, I think I'll stop there with the talk, leave that for reflections, offer an opportunity for you to ask questions, and see uh, see what comes from discussion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.